Good evening, Dr. Morgan. How are you? How are you, Danny? Good, good. Good to see you. And good evening to everybody who is uh, has joined us on Facebook Live. So I guess right. I should introduce myself. I am Danny Choi, President and CEO of the Eastlake Foundation. I'm excited to facilitate this session, which is hosted by Purpose Built Communities tonight. We are proud to be one model of neighborhood redevelopment and to partner with others across the country who also do this important work. Tonight's conversation is important to us because communities are important and they have been for quite some time. So, so we wanted to spend a little bit of time tonight um, talking about certainly the work that we do, but more specifically talking about the COVID-19 vaccine. Purpose-built communities has been very intentional in advancing social justice and doing so with the racial equity framework across the network that I just mentioned. And we do it, this, this racial equity work and social justice work, not only in the neighborhoods on the ground to benefit communities uh, and residents, but also in the internal work that we do within our organizations. As 2020 demonstrated and as 2021 is already showing us, there's so much more work to still be done to correct more than 400 years of systemic racism. But I know that every journey has to start somewhere. So tonight's conversation about the COVID-19 vaccine is about creating awareness and doing so intentionally through a racial equity and social justice lens. So tonight, I am excited to be joined by a few colleagues who are working behind the scenes. Um, Want to acknowledge and quickly thank Catherine Woodling, our director, the ESA Foundation's director of marketing and communications, and also uh, Tamara and Harold from Matlock, a Black-owned advertising and PR firm that our foundation and the Purpose Built Communities Network has been partnering with uh, in Atlanta and uh, doing great work all across the country. Throughout your discussion, throughout this discussion, please share the questions that you have with us in the chat. And Tamara and Harold and Catherine will be answering non-medical questions in that chat. And any medical questions that you send to us, uh, I will take from the chat and I will ask Dr. Morgan during the Q&A later in uh, today's program. If your question is not addressed, we will be sure that we post the Q&A with those answers following this live stream. So at this time, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce Dr. Jane Morgan. Dr. Jane Morgan is a cardiologist and the clinical director of the COVID Task Force at the Piedmont Healthcare Corporation here in Atlanta. Within this role, she is developing ongoing community outreach in conjunction with the Division of Diversity and Inclusion between Piedmont and the African-American community it serves. Additionally, Dr. Morgan will be analyzing the science and data from Piedmont and nationally surrounding the disproportionately negative impact of COVID-19 on minority communities. Ultimately, the goal is to identify methods as well as areas of improved triage, screening, and algorithms for the overall outcomes management of disadvantaged populations positive for COVID-19. Dr. Morgan is a native Atlantan who completed her BS degree at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia, go Spelman, and her medical degree at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. She completed her internal medicine residency at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and both her cardiology and pacemaker fellowships at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami, Florida. On a personal note, I've heard Dr. Morgan speak a few times, and each time she does it with heart, unintended, with passion and conviction, but above, above all else, she does it based on facts, evidence, and brings it all together with purpose. Dr. Morgan, welcome, and thank you for making the time, and thank you for your patience. Um, so, so let's Dr. Morgan, jump into the conversation. And if you by talking a little bit about the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, a lot of people are wondering, is it safe uh, for the Black community, particularly uh, people certainly have a level of mistrust, a history of, uh, of, uh, uh, of not the best treatment or approach from the healthcare system in the United States. Uh, so talk a little bit about history of, uh, of uh, mistrust with the healthcare system, particularly amongst the Black community. Yeah, so uh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, when we, you know, begin to encapsulate where we are today in the midst of this uh, COVID pandemic, actually, we're, we are now, you know, well into our third surge, um, and we have two vaccines that have rolled out between Moderna 
and Pfizer vaccine, this new technology, messenger RNA, what does that mean? But if we take a step back even uh, from that, do we even want to take the vaccine? If we take a step back even further from there, you know, what is our relationship even with research and what is our relationship with the healthcare system? And certainly that relationship from Black communities, Black and Brown communities, but specifically the African-American community, has been somewhat tenuous over the years. Um, we we uh, often uh, reference the Tuskegee experiment, but obviously there are many other uh, examples of uh, egregious treatment towards uh, Blacks uh, in this country that has created this chasm uh, in which we find ourselves with the COVID pandemic disproportionately being impacted and now a vaccine rollout where it's unclear whether we want to step up and take the vaccine or not. If we look within historical context and think about uh, the father of gynecology, his name is Dr. Marion Sims, uh, who created a, a wonderful surgical procedure to repair fistulas uh, in women. Fistulas are holes or connections that should not be there between the vagina and the rectum or the vagina and the urethra. And he developed this, this procedure such that women uh, were able to have that repaired um, and would have a great deal of comfort because when you have these fistulas, you can have a lot of infections and discomfort. Um, but what, what, uh, what came to light uh, eventually, and he had a large statue erected to him uh, in New York City, a bronze statue that we eventually uh, were successful in having removed in 2018, was that all of the prep work, all of the practice surgeries that he did in, in learning and teaching himself this technique were all done on Black women. Not only were they done on Black women, they were done on Black women who had no choice, uh, who had no advocacy for uh, themselves. Uh, they underwent surgeries for food or for lodging um, and had really no other, no other choices. As if this were not bad enough, all of the surgeries done on these women were done without anesthesia. Uh, they were done without mercy. Women writhed and screamed in pain. If you can imagine being cut and sewn and tissue uh, removed from your body and stitched back together with no anesthesia, with no hope of anesthesia. Um, and one woman in particular went through these surgeries 30 or 40 times. Eventually, he perfected this surgery. And when he was able to launch it and introduce it to, you know, the masses, meaning to white women, it had great success. And of course, all of the surgeries were performed on white women with anesthesia to great success. And so this was really a horror story for a man who was lauded for, you know, a century as being the father of gynecology as solving this problem. And yet the historical context behind that was nothing more than brutality. And so... It certainly is no wonder as to why we have this, this uh, relationship, this tenuous relationship with the healthcare system. We have a COVID vaccine that has rolled out. It seems to have been uh, prepared in a very quick way. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're, we're very unclear on what our role has been in that and what is our relationship with regard to are our lives being valued, were we considered in these trials, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's really where, where uh, we are today. So thank you, Dr. Morgan, for that historical perspective. It does give a great deal of context and insight as to why communities of color are often, reluct often reluctant to trust uh, healthcare systems. Uh, so with the COVID-19 vaccine, talk a little bit specifically about that. What are the benefits? What are the side effects, if any? And I'm certain that our viewing audience will want to know if you yourself, uh, as we're watching so many healthcare professionals and frontline workers uh, take the vaccine, I'm sure people want to know if, if you yourself have yet taken the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, two vaccines now that are on the market. Uh, these are vaccines by Pfizer and by Moderna. We have two others that are coming soon, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. And then we have uh, even two coming in uh, behind that one with both Sanofi and Novavax. So I'm going to talk about the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines primarily because those are the ones that are here now. They are under emergency use authorization, meaning they are not approved by the FDA, but the FDA recognizes that we are within a pandemic 
and is, has approved these vaccines to come out to control population health um, and decrease mortality, meaning the number of deaths. When we look at these vaccines side by side, what we want to concern ourselves with specifically for this conversation is, are the results of, these, of, these, of this data from these vaccines relevant to our populations? And how would they be relevant? They would be relevant if we had been involved in the trials. When we look at their phase three trials, which is the, the, the trials that you hear about in media, these large trials with 30 and 40,000 people, Moderna finished by enrolling 10.3% of African-Americans and Pfizer just below that at 9.8%. While we represent 13.4% of the population, so this certainly fell short of where we would have liked to have seen it, not representative of our actual uh, impact to the population, but certainly, certainly actually the best effort that I have seen in research in enrolling African-Americans in trials, because the fact of the matter is we generally um, are in, enrolled and recruited into trials at less than 5%, sometimes even at 2% or 1%. The reason that that is important is because when these vaccines and drugs and uh, devices roll out and they come before the FDA, we need to have confidence that these results and these data are relevant to our population. And so I think we can think with Moderna and Pfizer that even though they did not get to 13.4%, they certainly performed well at 9.8% and 10.3%. In fact, the data that we see when you take a look and read the FDA briefing documents, these are the documents, the scientific documents that are submitted to the FDA for consideration. This is the data that they actually review to determine whether they will approve a drug or a device or a vaccine. And so when you read these documents and look at the Moderna one, I'll start with the Moderna briefing document. What's interesting is that when we look at the percentage of Blacks that were in those trials and we look at the active group where the vaccine was given versus the placebo group, that's the control group that was not given the vaccine, all of the side effects called serious adverse events that occurred amongst all Black people who were enrolled in the trial occurred in the placebo group, meaning that there were absolutely zero side effects noted from Blacks who were enrolled in these trials in the active arms, the ones who actually received the vaccine. That's, that is phenomenal. And we think that there are 30 and 40,000 people enrolled in the trials and we were enrolled at roughly 10%. That's actually a significant number even though the percentage is less than we would like, the number is high. And we see some of those same things as well with the Pfizer vaccine. So I think we should have confidence that this vaccine is safe for our population. I received the vaccine five days ago on Saturday. I had uh, a little soreness in my arm, uh, a little stiffness in my right arm, my right deltoid. And it was very, very, very similar to receiving a flu vaccine. Um, those symptoms resolved within 24 hours. The most common symptoms are nausea, vomiting, chills, fever, headache, myalgias, meaning muscle aches and pains. I had none of that. I had uh, site injection, soreness, and stiffness for 24 hours. And Dr. Morgan, thank you for sharing that. I, I also realized from um, my own review of the information that it requires a second dose, a second uh, uh, vaccine shot to be effective. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and also share with our viewing audience, how can people find out more about when the vaccine is available to them? So if I'm someone who is 68 versus someone who's 21, and uh, how I can go about finding out how, how where to get the vaccine. And I'll start, I guess, with your with your second question. So the, the vaccine, um, I'll start with the first question. So there are two doses to the vaccines. These this is there will be two doses for uh Moderna and Pfizer. There also will be two doses for the AstraZeneca and Novavax vaccine. The only one that is slated to come out within the year that will be a single dose will be the Johnson and Johnson um vaccine which will be on, on a different platform. So we can talk about what the different platforms are. 
because these trials, these clinical trials were done with two doses, I certainly recommend that you receive the full two doses of these vaccines and that you do not mix. Take one of one company and one of the second company. If you start with Moderna, get your second vaccine with Moderna. If you start with Pfizer, get your second vaccine with Pfizer. Pfizer's uh, dosing schedule will be 21 days, so it's three weeks apart, dose one and dose two. Moderna's vaccine is four weeks apart between dose one and dose two. When we talk about it, I don't know if you uh, watched any of the media reports, but when they talk about the efficacy of these vaccines, it means how well they do what they are designed to do. In other words, how well do they treat the disease for which we are looking to treat, the intention to treat? They all finish, both of them, at 94.5% and 95%. That's actually phenomenal. In the pharma world, in the vaccine world, we really look at anything over 50% as a positive result. These vaccines were phenomenal in, in finishing at 95% efficacy, meaning they do what they, what they are intended to do, and 94.5% efficacy. That is, however, after the second dose. So you want to make certain that you receive that second dose such that you can have that high efficacy, that high protection from the vaccination, where you can go to get the vaccine. Initially, uh, we were uh, inoculating all front, all front uh, line workers. So these are all healthcare workers, uh, physicians, the pulmonologists, anesthesiologists, emergency physicians, nurses, um, internal medicine docs, primary care physicians, um, and all of the staff that were addressing um, all of these emergencies that they come into the into the system, including people environmental uh, in our environmental services staff who have to clean these infected rooms after the patients are moved. So all of that is the first line. Additionally, now that I think about it, which didn't impact the hospital, it was also long-term healthcare facilities and nursing homes and those, um, those, those patients, those residents, as well as the employees of those facilities. When we move to our second line, which is where we are um, now, that's including all first responders, meaning all police officers, firemen, uh, paramedics, ambulance drivers, people involved um, in research of COVID, people working in labs handling COVID specimens, and also for the public, those who are 65 years of age or older, those who have comorbid um, conditions, meaning that you have other medical conditions um, that you are managing that have nothing to do with COVID. You might have diabetes, you might have rheumatoid arthritis, you might have high blood pressure. Those are called comorbid conditions. So people with those as well would be in this next tier. And any of those with developmental um, disabilities, either physical or mental developmental handicaps or disabilities are also included. The vaccine will be available publicly um, at either your local hospitals, your local physician's offices. They will certainly be in pharmacies, Walgreens, et cetera. And so you need to find out locally what, what is around you locally and see if you can access it from there. If not, certainly ask your local physician. And if you don't have a physician, call your nearest hospital and ask them where you should go for the vaccine. Recommendation uh, that anyone taking the vaccine should stick with the brand or type, if you will, uh, that they start with for both do uh, both doses. I know people will want, will want to know if the place where they go, if they will share the type of vaccine, the brand of vaccine that they're offering, is that something that will be made available for public consumption? Yes. So you should, you, you, if you want the information, uh, you should be able to have it. And so for instance, for me, I received the Moderna vaccine um, at the facility that I work. I work at Piedmont uh, Healthcare in Atlanta. We have both the Pfizer and the Moderna. I was offered the Moderna and I said, yes. If I had been offered the Pfizer, I would have said yes. That was what I was offered. And so I'm going to recommend that whatever you, you are offered or whatever you have access to, you take that vaccine. When I have looked at the FDA briefing documents on both of these vaccines and the data that was accumulated for these vaccines, the difference between these two is negligible. You probably have heard that there are storing requirements where the Pfizer vaccine requires cold storage, meaning minus 80 degrees Celsius, a very cold storage. Moderna vaccine doesn't require that degree of cold storage. And 
And perhaps in your mind, you're thinking, oh, that, that must be either better or worse, however, however you're thinking about it. But actually, with regard to the efficacy and the safety of these vaccines, meaning how well they work, efficacy, controlling the disease and safety, whether or not you are likely to have side effects or any other issues with the vaccine are almost identical when you go through the briefing documents. And that's what you really want to to focus on. When we ask about immunity, which is the other question that I I most commonly get, if again, if you're comparing the two vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, the answer is the same. We don't know how long uh, you will have immunity to COVID-19 once you take the vaccine. The reason for that is that these vaccines are not FDA approved. They are approved under an emergency use authorization. So that is a recognition that all of the data is not available as we would have it in a traditional trial, meaning we complete the entire trial and then we follow patients for a year, six months, 18 months, gather all of that data, and then we submit it to the FDA. Because we are in an emergency pandemic, we did what you call an interim analysis, meaning we looked at the data at the halfway point to see what that looks like. And and remember, once again, we're talking about thousands of patients and we look at the halfway point and that data was submitted to the FDA. And then we looked at the three quarter point and that data was, was submitted to the FDA. And then many patients at that point had already completed the trial. And so the FDA made a decision because we were under an emergency to approve these vaccines for public availability because the data looked so good that was available. What data was not available? The data that was not available was the long-term follow-up. That long-term follow-up is where we we get the information on how long the immunity lasts. So for Pfizer and for Moderna, we have information really only up to 90 days with regard to how long your immunity lasts. We suspect that it lasts much longer than that, but we have to wait for the data to come in. So Stay tuned. Currently, it's at least 90 days. We don't know how much longer, and we will find out as the data comes in. Thank you. One of the commonly asked questions uh, or comments that I hear are from people who want to know if once they get the um, vaccine, if it means that they are in the free and clear. Um, They Mm -hmm. ask things like, do I need to continue to mask or social distance? Um, what happens if I come into contact with someone else uh, who is COVID positive? Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. And so if you have had the vaccine and you are one of the lucky ones who maybe you've completed both doses, which almost no one in the U.S. has completed both doses. So let's say we're down the road and you've you've had both doses of, of, uh, of your vaccine. You still need to wear a mask. You still need to practice social distancing at least six feet from another person who's also masked, and you need to practice washing your hands. The reason for that is we don't know, even though you may not be sick, if you contract COVID, you could be a carrier and you could spread it to others. It also means that even though these vaccines are 95% effective, there is a 5% window, and you could be in that 5% window where you might still contract COVID, albeit with a much milder course of disease. So you want to be cognizant or be aware and have some social responsibility that even though you have this vaccine, you could also turn into a vector of spreading this disease to others because you won't have symptoms because you've been immunized, but you might carry it to other people who are vulnerable some who either have not had the vaccine or will not be able to get the vaccine. So don't forget, there are always people within our society who are not able to take all drugs and medications for a number of reasons of other health reasons that they have. Those people are depending on you to be healthy, to keep them from being sick because they are uh, disqualified from receiving the vaccine for any number of health uh, reasons and challenges that they have where their body will interact in, in in a way that's dangerous for them. So they're not able to take it. And so, and they are ill. And so they are depending, that's what, that's what we talk about when we talk about herd immunity. They're depending on their community to be healthy enough 
that the community never contracts the disease. So therefore, they don't need to have the vaccine because the virus never comes into the community because the herd is immunized. And so they don't have to be immunized because the disease is kept away because their community is keeping the disease away. So we need to be able to think about other people as well. How will the how will the um, vaccine see that someone has uh, gone through both doses of the vaccine? Uh, how will the vaccine impact at all uh, the importance or need to get a flu shot? You know, H1N1 is type of flu and this SARS-CoV-2, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2, is the name of the virus that causes the disease COVID-19. H1N1 is the name of a virus that causes the flu. So these are two different viruses. They are not covered by the same vaccine. So I would recommend that you get both vaccines, not at the same time, but that you certainly get a flu vaccine to cover the flu because your COVID vaccine will not cover that. And that you get a COVID vaccine to cover COVID because it's not covering the flu and the flu is not going to cover COVID. If for whatever reason you end up with the flu or you end up with COVID at the same time, this is a super infection, which really greatly increases your risk of death and other severe long-term outcomes. So not only do you not want to have the COVID disease, you certainly don't want to have flu at the same time as a COVID disease because that increases your risk of being ill. Talk a little bit, Dr. Morgan, about um, some of the concerns, some of the chatter about the timing of the vaccine. I know that also caused people to be a little bit alarmed. So when we look at the, the timing of the vaccine, which is you know uh, always an excellent question, it seems, it seems to us that sort of COVID was in the U.S., and within 10 months, we had a vaccine ready. But what happens behind the scenes is very different than that. So in 2003, we had our first outbreak of SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. That's the name of the virus. We had our first outbreak in 2003. In 2019, when we have uh, SARS-CoV-2, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. It's so named because SARS-1 was the outbreak in 2003, that coronavirus. This is SARS-2. And so the gap in time is 17 years. It's not that nothing happens in those 17 years. In fact, there was ongoing research and study and trials in those 17 years trying to understand this strain of coronavirus. By the time we had our very first case that was diagnosed here on U.S. shores, 17 years of research had been done. And when I say the research was done, all of the preclinical work was done and the data was available. All of the bench research had been done and the data was available. The entire genomic sequence had been identified and and analyzed. That's 30,000 base pairs have been identified. And we also knew that the area to target on the coronavirus was the spike protein because of it, because of its binding to the ACE, uh, the um, uh, ACE receptor, the angiotensin converting enzyme receptor. We already knew that. We knew we didn't have to focus on the entire uh, virus. We knew that we only needed to look at the spike protein. We had the entire genomic sequence all the preclinical work had been done, all the bench work had been done. That was before we even had our first case here in the U.S. So all of that work came to bear. That was where we started. So if you can imagine starting, that's part of the entire vaccine development process. That's where we started. And then when you look at the new technology, messenger RNA, that was a technology that we've been working on since the 90s that actually was available to us as far back as the 60s. And so these two technologies, these two, the timing of the development of this of uh, and the study of the coronavirus and the development of this new pathway of developing vaccine via messenger RNA came together to develop this COVID vaccine. And yet the development process had been going on almost for two decades. 
So we have these variants of the vaccine. The one in the UK is is one that's is receiving a lot of uh, a lot of uh, media attention. Uh, we also have it in, in South Africa, um, and certainly we have a, a number of cases now in the U.S. But something for us to to think about that I first want to talk with you about is when we talk about these strains, mm. it it doesn't mean that um, that the virus is actually getting stronger or bigger or meaner. Um, oftentimes, even the word mutation in scientific terms, mutation just really means that there is a change when we think about that scientifically, not in layman's terms. The fact of the matter is most mutations that occur in viruses actually serve to weaken the virus, make it less virulent, make it less successful. The other thing to think about is I think I already alluded that it's 30,000 base pairs uh, for, for this virus. The mutations that have occurred are generally between two and eight base pairs long. That's incredibly small, very negligible, rarely enough to affect any change. So what are we talking about here in the, in the, in the United Kingdom? The strain that they have identified there or the mutation uh, they have discovered is more contagious or more infectious, meaning that this particular mutation, if you are in contact or around someone or breathing that same air of someone who has this particular mutation, then you are more likely to also become COVID positive than if you are in contact with someone who had another strain. It doesn't make the disease itself, COVID-19, worse in your body the disease process is the same, but it does make it more likely that you will contract COVID-19 and whatever that course of the disease will take, its, will, will, take, uh, will take effect. And so we don't know for the most part who's going to be very sick and who isn't. So we certainly don't want um, a strain um, uh, populating our society that's even more contagious. Because even though it doesn't alter the severity or the virulence or the clinical course of COVID-19, it means more people are infected. And that means more people will be hospitalized and more people will die, even though the disease process is exactly the same. And so we want to understand what that is. The other thing to think about when we think about these mutations to keep them in context is that this, this virus has probably mutated at this point close to 3,000 times, certainly 2,500. So just think about that for a moment. And even though this particular variant has been identified in the United Kingdom, the fact of the matter is we have not done a good job of tracking and tracing and identifying all of these variants, over 2,500 of them. So we really don't know if this variant is any more infectious than some other variants that we have failed to identify. It just so happens that this one has been identified. It doesn't mean that we should relax and feel comfortable about it, but I just wanted to provide some scientific context to what mutations mean and what this more infectious variant means of this mutation, that your disease will not be worse, but you're more likely to contract it and if you don't want to contract it because you really don't know how the disease is going to impact you, including all the way up to um, death. And so those are the kinds of things that we want to think about when we when we think about all of these variants. We want to wear our mask, wash our hands, keep a safe, a safe distance and give some respect uh, to this virus as it goes through the world. The only other thing that I will add to that is remember that this virus is spread via air aerosol. So just think about that. When they first identified the UK variant, we began to shut down, you know, our airports and block people from traveling. But just think for a second. This virus is transmitted by air. By the time that they've identified a variant in the United Kingdom, it is already here on our shores without a doubt. The reason for that is it's very hard to contain air. We are homo sapiens, human beings. We require air to live. We breathe about 12 times a minute. We require air 12 times a minute. Think about what that is over the course of a day. How many thousands of breaths we have to take. We require air 
And we now have a virus that is transmitted via air. That's why it can be so successful. It's also hard to contain air, unlike other viruses and pandemics that could be bloodborne or fecal-borne um, or direct contact, those types of things. This is air. We don't necessarily have to be in contact with someone to, to have this. And so uh, we need to give this virus some respect. Uh, if you, When you are offered the vaccine, certainly step up and take the vaccine because we want the population uh, to be healthy as we combat this. Earlier uh, in, well, not in this year, but in 2020, I do recall that there was a little bit of backlash uh, toward the government. Um, I recall some backlash toward uh, historically black college and colleges and university presidents uh, about promoting the importance of the, the vaccine. Uh, mm-hmm. And as I think about that, and, and as I framed early in the conversation, you know, that the healthcare system has a history that has caused communities of color to mistrust it. Uh, government is no different. Um, right. So, so I guess my question for you is: uh, Is the mistrust of government, is the mistrust of institutions, um, including institutions that are uh, are led um, by black and and brown and other leaders of color? Is that mistrust still warranted? So um, when we look at the data, 80% of uh, African-Americans in this country um, have African-American doctors. And why is that? Why do we only, for the most part, seek out our own doctors? Primary reason for that is safety. We go first where we feel safe. We secondly select Black physicians because we want to feel valued. Um, we are often treated or made to feel um, in a dismissive manner. Um, questions are not fully answered. Uh, we feel as if uh, enough time hasn't been given. And we are addressed oftentimes disrespectfully by your first name, etc. Imagine that we are the only culture that selects a doctor based primarily on safety. Who values my life? as much as I do, who values my life equal to that of a white life? And secondly, based on respect, that's how we select our physicians. No other culture selects its physicians um, in that way. Our relationship with the healthcare system has been tenuous at best or just cause. And certainly healthcare has some responsibility, some role in that. There's certainly uh, bias within the healthcare system. You need to look no further than the opioid epidemic. When we look at the opioid epidemic, it's not by mistake that it's mostly impacting only whites in this country. The reason for that is that opioids, which are pain pills that are prescribed to control pain by, by doctors to patients, are generally underprescribed or withheld altogether by physicians to Black patients because they are perceived, we are perceived as having less pain or pain not being worthy of being managed, or we should be able to manage the pain, or oftentimes we're seen as being drug seekers when we have equal pain. And so we're not prescribed pain medicine. When I say we're not prescribed pain medicine, whites are prescribed pain medicine at 30 times, 30-fold the uh, degree that Blacks are prescribed pain medicine. And so when you look at this opioid epidemic, it's an epidemic of bias, of privilege. These are people who were provided access to pain medicine. If you are, if you have pain that is not being well managed, that is being overlooked, not only are you in physical distress, you have emotional and psychological distress in managing that pain. And so we certainly see the healthcare system as not being blameless. If we look as well, very currently in 2020, at the George Floyd murder at the knee of a police officer in Minnesota, when the ambulance and paramedics were called and those paramedics arrived, no CPR was given to George Floyd. They did not try to revive him. They made no attempt at resuscitation when they arrived. 
They didn't even remove his handcuffs and his hands were tied behind his back. He was loaded into the back of an ambulance like a a sack of potatoes by paramedics. These are the people who are trained to arrive at the scene and deliver life-saving first aid. Not a single effort was made at resuscitation of him. We did not notice that. We saw that. The healthcare system is not blameless. And so certainly then we have to ask ourselves, well, is there no wonder that we don't want to step up when we are being um, um, asked to take vaccines and involved in clinical trials? But I want us to start to think about healthcare system in connection with clinical trials. Clinical trials offer our best and our brightest thinking. There have been no advances in science and medicine that have not come through clinical trials. We are not involved in clinical trials, including even cancer trials. We do not enroll in these trials. We have cancers that disproportionately impact our uh, community, prostate cancer, colon cancer, some forms of breast cancer, and yet we don't enroll in those trials. Whites enroll in those trials. And then that data that is submitted to the FDA for those drugs to treat these cancers are approved based on data, not only of whites, but generally of white males. And then what happens when we are prescribed these medicines after they have been approved, that is the first time that we learn how they're going to impact our body. And that's the first time that your physicians have to make adjustments because you've had uh, such and such reaction at home or or uh, there's been some untoward effect. And now we're making adjustments after the drug has been released in what we call real world situation, meaning it's now it's not controlled. And so when we talk about being guinea pigs, I ask you, on which end of the medical spectrum are we really guinea pigs? Are we guinea pigs at the beginning of drug development where we are refusing to be involved because we don't want people to experiment on us? Or are we guinea pigs at the other end after the entire development process has taken place and these drugs have been developed and approved without any information on us at all? And that's the first time we will learn about it when we are being prescribed it in our doctor's office. On which end are we really the guinea pigs? So we have to begin to understand the importance of enrolling in clinical trials, the importance of representation in clinical trials and what that means. Certainly, cancer trials clearly, clearly decrease the rate of recurrence of cancer. Is that not of value to our community? They also can increase in some cases your lifespan on those trials, two weeks, three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Is that not valuable to you for a loved one that we stay out because we don't want to be guinea pigs? On which end are we really guinea pigs? And we have to begin to think about what that means. And then the last thing that I will say is if you are uninsured or you are underinsured, clinical trials offers access to the healthcare system. If you are enrolled in a clinical trial, your care, your visits, your research visits are covered by those drug companies. Not only that, you have the direct contact information of the nurse coordinator or research coordinator who's overseeing your care. If you're at home and anything happens to you and you feel badly, you get a headache, you fall down, your tooth hurts, You have a direct number of someone who calls, who responds to your emails and wants to know what's going on because that has to be reported to the FDA. Where else do you get care like that? Not only do you have your physician looking over you, the physician who's running the trial in your area is looking over you. The physician that's running the trial in your region is looking over you. The national physician is looking over that physician who's looking over that physician. All of that's coming down to you. That is outstanding. Healthcare. That is what we call platinum level health care. And Black people don't access that because we're still concerned about being guinea pigs. I say in many of my talks 
If you're seeing your doctor and you have not been offered a clinical trial, you're being treated optimally, meaning you're being treated to the absolute highest level of care that the FDA provides to the public. But if you are not being offered a clinical trial, you are not being treated maximally. Clinical trials offer the future as a part of your clinical care. And I'll give you one great example. When we look at Donald Trump, when he became infected with COVID-19, he was sitting in the White House, 74 years old, overweight, desaturating, meaning his oxygen level was dropping. So these are three risk factors. He was, he took a helicopter over to Walter Reed and immediately received Regeneron's monoclonal antibody therapy. We've never even heard of it. Do you know why? Because it's not available to the public. It's not approved by the FDA. The Regeneron's monoclonal antibody is only available within a clinical trial. They credit that antibody therapy with helping his recovery when his oxygen levels were dropping and he was receiving external oxygen supplementation. Do you know who else received Regeneron's monoclonal antibody therapy? All those people who are enrolled in the trials. Why would we not want the same type of therapy? That's platinum level healthcare. That's healthcare where we talk about access to healthcare that people who are uninsured and underinsured also have an opportunity to access to improve their health and begin to close this gap on health equity. We have to begin to think about clinical trials in a different way. When we look at the COVID vaccines, I talked about Moderna, I talked about Pfizer, which are messenger RNA trials, messenger RNA vaccines. We have AstraZeneca and J&J, Johnson and Johnson, which will be vector vaccines. Then we have Novavax and Sanofi that are coming out, which will be uh, protein uh, vaccines. But what I want to bring to your attention is that's just six. There are over 123 companies developing COVID vaccines. Let's just think about that for a minute. When we look at the pharmacy market, first to market, whoever can be first to market, really has an advantage because you're really a cornering the market. You're the first one and no one has a choice. This is who they have to take. You make lots of money. But ultimately, what everybody wants to be is best in class. After all is said and done, after all these 123 companies have developed their vaccines and shown their hands, which one is best? Not only which one is best, which one is best for you? We won't know that. If we don't involve ourselves in these clinical trials as they continue and they are ongoing, Moderna and Pfizer are available now. Those are our only choices. That's the advantage of being first to market. But when it's all said and done, these may not be the best vaccines for our communities. And the only way that we would know that is if we enrolled in the trials such that we can ensure that our community has platinum level health care at all times. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. I have two additional questions for you before we close out our, our time. Uh, and I'm going to read this to one. It's from Maria. I work as a nurse practitioner in mental health, so my concern is also for my patient population. Recent studies have shown that people with illness are at high risk of morbidity and mortality from COVID-19. Have you heard anything about the population being prioritized in vaccine allocation? So I think I understood the question that you work in a mental health facility and you're trying to understand what the prioritization would be in the mental health communities. And so your prioritization should be now when we're looking at first responders, because it's also patients with mental and physical developmental um, um, disabilities. Also, these types of patients, if uh, you work in a healthcare facility, a mental healthcare facility, so I'm wondering if any of them are institutionalized, meaning that they spend the night there sometimes, all of that rolls into um, being on the priority list for this, for this second tier. And certainly you working there as well would also be a part of that as an employee. 
And so I I think one of the things we have to consider when we're thinking about COVID-19, the vaccine, what is the role of the healthcare systems uh, within that entire concept is to understand what our relationships are with our physicians. And one of the, you know, there, there are actually many, but one of the solutions to improved enrollment in clinical trials as a broader topic, but certainly the COVID vaccine trials, is that our physicians also need to be brought on as principal investigators uh, for these trials, meaning they're the ones who are leading the trials. If your physician is brought on as a principal investigator, then she or he understands that trial very well, and they're able to offer access to you um, as well. It also creates a connection to an academic center or a medical center for that physician, for the staff, and then also for the patients, which also provides even greater access to other clinical trials going forward. We have to begin to think about clinical trials and COVID vaccine trials, not so much in the concept of the Tuskegee experiment, which was horrible, horrendous, unforgivable, but we have to begin to think about it in terms of what's best for us and our community. We cannot continue to allow medicine to be practiced this way, where drugs, devices, and vaccines are developed on white men for their benefit. And then we learn what the side effects are after they've been approved. We cannot continue to allow drugs and drug companies to develop drugs in this way. So we must begin to think about that in a different way. Starts with your physician, physicians, um, and the relationships with drug companies who need to recruit physicians who look like me, who look like you, such that we can begin to bring our patients into the fold and continue to narrow this gap in health equity and, and begin to provide this platinum level health care that Donald Trump demonstrated to the entire world exactly a, an illustration of exactly what that is. We need to move our thinking away from exploitation to representation, away from experimental to investigational. And we have to think about that. This COVID pandemic gives us an opportunity to begin to think about that with regard to stepping up and taking the vaccine. So certainly opt in, say yes, encourage others to do so, and take care of your health. 